Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. What I want to do today is I, want to, I just want to reach back just to Friday, just to Friday, because Friday was the epiphany and I want to I want to preach a sermon on those mysterious magi from the east. I'll call my sermon today Kings Shall Come. Matthew 2 verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king behold Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, in Christian theology and in the church calendar, we speak of this as the epiphany. We do that because this is the beginning of the revelation or epiphany. That's what epiphany means. You know, it's an awakening, a revelation, an aha. That's what it means. We, we could call it the aha, but we say the, the epiphany. This is the moment that Jesus Christ is first revealed to the Gentiles. Yeah, those, those wise men from the East were the first Gentile worshipers of Christ. They received the aha. This is the king. Now, these Gentile worshipers of Jesus Christ, the first ones, the wise man from the east, these were, we say, these were magi. Magi were most likely, best we can figure it out, they are Zoroastrian, astronomer, astrologers, who served in the courts of the king in Persia, which is a thousand miles away. From Israel. So the Magi came to worship the king of the Jews because of an auspicious sign in the sky that they discerned, indicating this very important king of the Jews had been born. Now, for years, for years, I was, I was fascinated by this Bethlehem star. So I read books and I read all kinds of, you know, learned speculations as to what this Bethlehem star may have been. You know, was it a triple conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation of Pisces? I read, I read all that stuff and, and I preached uh, on that some. Uh, I have to tell you though that these days that is not what interests me. It, it's just not. That was a phase. We've kind of gone through that phase. Uh, what does fascinate me though is how Matthew's account, the gospel writer Matthew, how Matthew's account of the wise men from the east is anticipated in Isaiah. These days I'm more interested in how scripture works than in scientific, historic, astronomical speculations. So let's begin by looking at a prophetic poem composed more than 500 years before the birth of Christ, which anticipates the coming of the Magi. Isaiah chapter 60. 
Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. For the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from far away and your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea shall be brought to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. All right. Let me begin by showing you what Isaiah, this 6th century B.C. prophet, who's actually in, in Babylon at this time, let me show you what Isaiah means with his prophecy and then show you that what Isaiah means by his, prophet, by his prophecy isn't what is most important. It's not what matters most because Isaiah's arise, shine poem means far more than the prophet Isaiah in the 6th century B.C. could ever have imagined. All right, let's get started. Let's look at it. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Well, who's you? Who's the prophet talking to? Who's the prophet talking about? He's talking about Israel. He is prophesying to Jewish exiles who are living in Babylon, now under the rule of Persian kings. Persia has conquered Babylon now. And so you have all these exiles, these Jewish exiles living in Babylon under the reign of Persian kings. And Isaiah is prophesying to them, to Israel. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. This is the spiritual darkness of idolatry that covers the Gentile world. The nations of the world, they worship, but they worship in ignorance. I mean, there's something in them that reaches out for the transcendent, but they don't have revelation. They haven't had any epiphanies. They're just groping in the darkness, thick darkness, gross darkness upon them. But the Lord will rise upon you, upon Israel. And the glory shall appear over you. The, the, it'll be, maybe it's almost like, like, it's like a star will appear over them. Nations, that, that's Gentile nations, goyim, Gentile nations, shall come to your light, to your truth, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Oh, there's, there's where we get the kings. Kings shall come. There's the kings. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together. They come to you. So 
so these nations, these kings, they're coming to, to Israel. And then it says, your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. This is the diaspora. Because Jews have been not only carried off to Babylon, but they've been kind of just scattered around. But Isaiah foresees a great homecoming. They'll come back. They'll come back. But they'll come back, you know, honored. They'll be, they'll be carried back. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea shall be brought to you. That is, from, from overseas, from foreign lands, great abundance of tribute shall be brought. Treasures from overseas shall be brought to this restored Israel. The wealth of the nations, the Gentile nations, shall come to you. So the, the treasure, Gentile treasure is going to come to Israel. A multitude of camels, there we get to camels. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah and all those from Sheba shall come. So there's going to be camel caravans carrying their wealth, the wealth of the Gentile nations to a restored and glorious Israel. They shall bring gold and frankincense and no more, no more yet. It's just gold and frankincense. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord, the praise of Yahweh, the praise not of Bel and Nebo and Zeus and whatever. No, the praise of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. The Gentiles are going to start praising the God of Israel. All right, so that's... That's the 6th century B.C. prophecy from Isaiah of the exile. And Isaiah means in his prophecy, if we'd, if we'd been able to sit, sit him down and interview him, well, what, do you, what do you mean by that, Isaiah? What do you anticipate? Well, Isaiah means that a day will come when the Gentile nations will bring tribute to a restored and glorious Israel that's been humiliated, they've been defeated, conquered, carried off, exile, all that. There's going to be a restoration and the nations will bring tribute to a restored and glorious Israel. That's the obvious meaning. In biblical interpretation, we would call that the authorial intent. That's the fancy word. That's, that's what the author intends. That's what's, what's in the author's mind. That's the authorial intent of Isaiah 60. But is it what the text most deeply means? Not according to Matthew. Matthew sees it fulfilled in Gentiles coming to Christ. If we connect, and we have to do this, if we connect Isaiah 60 with Matthew 2, that's when we get kings and camels. We three kings of Orient are. But Matthew doesn't talk about it. kings. Magi, they served in the palaces of the kings, courts of the kings, advisors to the kings, counselors to the kings, but they're not kings themselves. But you get kings from Isaiah. And that's where you get the camels. I mean, you cannot talk about, you cannot talk about wise men coming to Jesus without camels. <laughs> I mean, every Christmas card, every picture, every nativity set you've ever seen has these camels. But camels aren't mentioned in Matthew 2. They come from here. They come from here. And the reason we have three is because in Matthew, you get the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
Among the, uh, the Coptic Christians of Egypt, their tradition is that there were 12 wise men. I'm glad we're not Coptic because, you know, 12 camels, just too much, too much on, too much on Christmas. That just, that'd just be a bridge too far. So you, you get, you get the kings and the camels from Isaiah 60. Uh, and Isaiah gives us the gold for the king and the frankincense. That's a gift for the temple. You could say for God, but it's Matthew that gives us the myrrh. Myrrh is interesting. Myrrh was a costly resin used. In, it was very, I mean, like super expensive. Myrrh was this costly resin often traded in Petra, if you know about that place. And uh, it was used in the manufacturing of perfumes and was used in royal burials. Only, only kings could afford to be buried with the spices of myrrh because it's so costly. You will remember, perhaps, that at the burial of Jesus, Nicodemus, one of the dissenting members of the Sanhedrin, bought a hundred pounds, which is a, is a fortune, a hundred pounds of myrrh and buried Jesus with that. That was, that was Nicodemus' way of giving Jesus a kingly burial. It was Nicodemus' way of saying, I believe this one truly was the Messiah, the king. Well, no one could have predicted what we find in Matthew 2 by reading Isaiah 60. In the, in the, I mean, you're not going to be in the 6th century and you're going to go, wait a minute, wait a minute, I just read Isaiah 60. Okay, there's going to be a, a virgin-born child, probably end up in Bethlehem, uh, in a manger wrapped in swollen clothes. And wise men, Persian magi, will come and bring gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You, you wouldn't have predicted that. I mean, you just see the prophecy and you, it's what it is. But in the light of Christ, we return to the scriptures and we see it's all about Jesus. And once we know, it's like watching the movie, uh, what's the movie? Sixth Sense. I see dead people. You don't get it the first time, but once, once, once you've seen the movie one time, I, if I'm spoiling it for you, come on. I mean, the movie's been out for like 20 years. But once, once you know the, the plot, then you go back and you go, how did I miss it? Same thing. Once we realize that it's all about Jesus, we go back and we say, well, Jesus is on every page. Of course, this is about Jesus. After Emmaus, remember Jesus appearing to those disciples on the Emmaus road. After Emmaus... This is how the apostles and the later church fathers read the scriptures because then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It's about Jesus. Now the significance of the Magi coming from the east to worship Jesus as king, well, it's, it's uh, many-folded. There are several things, several implications that are very significant about Magi from the East coming to worship Jesus. First of all, all the prophetic promises made to and about Israel are embodied and fulfilled in the Messiah. So the prophecy in Isaiah 60 is that Gentiles come to Israel, but they come to Israel by coming to Israel's Messiah. How do the Gentiles come to Israel? They come to Israel by coming to Israel's Messiah. 
Jesus of Nazareth, the one born of a virgin wrapped in swollen clothes, lying in a manger, who is the seed of Abraham, the son of David, the fulfillment of all of these long... Jesus becomes Israel embodied in a single individual that through him, God might keep all of his promises. So Israel is reconfigured in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that now the body of Messiah consists of the baptized both of Jew and Gentile. As the Apostle Paul will tell us, in Christ, in the Messiah, once you're, once you're baptized into the Messiah, well, there's no, there's no Jew or Greek. There's no bond or free. No male or female, all those kind of social distinctions and religious distinctions are swept away. All that matters now is that the whole world is invited into the body of Messiah through faith and baptism. Another significant thing about the Magi coming to worship Christ is that, well, I'm going to use another fancy term, but I, I just like it so much. The eschatological pilgrimage of the nations in Isaiah is not fulfilled, but foreshadowed by the Magi. Okay, let's unpack that. First of all, in, in, in theology, this, this prophecy in Isaiah 60 about kings and the nations coming and their, the abundance of the seas and the camels and they're bringing their treasures. It's called the eschatological, meaning having to do with the end, pilgrimage, because it's a long journey they're making, of the nations, that is the Gentile nations. The Eschatological Pilgrimage of the Nations. That'll be the title of my next album. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 like, I like that term. But it's not, it's not fulfilled by the magic. It isn't, you have, let's say there's three. You, you have these three kings of Orient are, or these three magi from Persia, and they come and they worship Christ. That's not the fulfillment of the eschatological pilgrimage of the nation. It's the foreshadowing of it. Um, the Magi were the first Gentile. How many Gentiles do we have here today? I think it's mostly Gentiles. I kid you not. I had this, I'm not making this up. While Derek was making announcements, I already know the announcements. I don't have to pay that much attention. <laughs> I asked Paris, I said, what are we having for lunch? She said, pork chops. See, see, we're Gentiles. I just am. I just am. Pork chops. All right. So the first, I mean, I mean, God's working through the chosen people, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. He's, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and the prophets and it reaches its culmination in Yahshua, Hamashiach, Jesus, the Messiah. But now suddenly, everyone's invited to get in on it, even pork chop eating Gentiles. <laughs> now the first worshipers of the Jewish Messiah were these magi, but they were not the last. Because here we are. Because here we are. And so the exponential growth of the church in the early centuries is what fulfills Isaiah's prophecy. Not just these three magi, these three wise men from the east riding their camels, to come worship Jesus in Bethlehem. That's, not the, that's the foreshadowing. The fulfillment is the exponential growth of the church in the first centuries of Christianity. In, in which, you know, what happens is the God of Israel replaces the God of Gentile polytheism through Jesus Christ. 
I mean, it doesn't take that long. I mean, a few centuries. And, and all the old gods are just put out of business. They're just out of business. Poor old Zeus is like, yeah, people used to worship me. Now they're all just worship this Jesus. And they're just out of business. Um, Perry's completing a master's degree in theology and she was reading me a paper that she's been working on for quite some time. She finished it yesterday and was dancing around the house. And uh, she read it to me. And I, I want to share a quote from Origen that she has in her paper. This is, this is the church father Origen, 185 to 253. So he's early, early, early guy. And he writes, when until the coming of Christ did the land of Britain accept belief in one God or the Moors of Africa or the whole globe? But now there are churches on the frontiers of the world and all the earth shouts for joy to the God of Israel. Jesus makes the God of Israel famous. Jesus makes the God of Israel God. I mean, just in the Western world, if you say God, everybody by default means the God of Israel. Even Western atheists are monotheists. <laughs> The God they don't believe in is one God, the God of Israel. Unless you coach them, they'll never say, yeah, I don't believe in the gods. No, they'll say, I don't believe in God. Which God? Well, you did that one. <laughs> the significance of the Magi from the east coming to worship Jesus also indicates this. Isaiah's eschatological pilgrimage of the nations is fulfilled in Christ, fulfilled in Christ, marks the beginning of the end. Let me read that again. Isaiah's eschatological pilgrimage of the nations, that is that there'll be a moment when the nations will come to Israel and they do that by coming to Israel's Messiah. Fulfilled in Christ marks the beginning of the end. Early Christian theologians, I'm talking first centuries, they did not read the prophetic passages of Isaiah and Ezekiel and elsewhere, Zechariah, to find out what was going to happen in the future. They read it to find out what was fulfilled in Christ. They said, Christ has come. What does it mean? And so, for example, this is one example. When they read in Isaiah 2, 4, that in the reign of Messiah, they will turn swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, they didn't say, oh, we'll wait for Jesus to come a second time and then we'll live that way. No, the early church said, Christ has come. No matter what the rest of the world does, we're going to turn swords into spears, swords into, what do you turn swords into? Plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. We're going to lay down the weapons of war, take up the, 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 the tools of agriculture because Christ has come. So, so they, they, they were reading these prophetic eschatological passages, not to find out what was going to happen, but to find out what Christ had already accomplished. Indeed, Paul speaks of first century Christians as those, quote, on whom the end of the ages has come. So the end of the ages begins with the coming of Christ. I don't know how long it stretches out before the, the final culmination of all things. 2,000 years, 200,000 years, I don't know. But I just know that the end of the ages, the beginning of the end is inaugurated with the coming of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. One more, talking about the significance of the Magi. The gold, frankincense, and myrrh the Magi brought to Christ 
signifies the true treasures of the Gentile world brought with them as they come to Christ. Okay, so you, you have these Persian magi that bring their gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. Famous, but we know this. But that's not, the, that's not the end of it. That's the beginning of it. And it, it foreshadows the far greater treasures that the Gentiles were. Far greater than, I mean, that's nice. Gold, frankincense, myrrh, that's nice. But there's actually greater treasures of the Gentiles to be brought to Christ. And uh, Gerhard Lofink, one of my favorite New Testament scholars, he writes, he, he writes about it. This is so beautiful. Gerhard Lofink, in his book, No Irrelevant Jesus Says. The narrative about wise men from the East deals with an intensely real event, namely the miracle that surprised the young church exceedingly, that suddenly Gentiles from far distant places were streaming into the church, including highly gifted women, highly highly gifted and learned women and men driven by longing for the true God and his Messiah. I mean, the, the, the true gifts are just the human giftedness that we have that, are, that we bring to Christ. We say, now, now I will serve Christ with this. I'll read it again. The narrative about wise men from the East deals with an intensely real event, namely the miracle that surprised the young church exceedingly, that suddenly Gentiles from far distant places were streaming into the church, including highly gifted and learned women and men driven by longing for the true God and his Messiah. So wise women and wise men were bringing their gifts to Christ. We come to Jesus because we need forgiveness and we need healing, don't we? I mean, we, we sense our own sinfulness. We're aware of this. We know of our own brokenness. We know this. We know that we're not, that something's broken. Something's wrong. And so we come to Jesus because we need someone to forgive us and heal us. If we're wise, we'll come to Jesus. Because Jesus is the one that forgives our sins and heals our brokenness. We come to Jesus because we live in a world full of falsehood. We can feel the falseness. Everything's false. And we come to Jesus because we have a deep yearning for something that is true. Something that is true. And Jesus... I mean, what is truth? Jesus is truth. He's the way, the truth. And so we, we come to Jesus because we have this deep, in a world filled with falsehood, we desire for that which is true and it brings us to Jesus. And we come to Jesus because we just know, we just know that we need to offer our gifts to the one who is truly worthy. You have gifts. You have gifts. You have things you can do. You have gifts. I'm going to preach in two weeks. I'm going to preach a sermon called It's All a Gift, but I want to get ahead of myself. You have gifts. And what you need to do is not just lavish them upon yourself, but 
in one way or another, and there'll be very many ways, but in one way or another, you, you bring your gifts to the one who's truly worthy of them. And it's part of your worship. We present our bodies, our lives, a living and acceptable sacrifice unto God. Amen. Stand up with me. Let's just pray a moment before we come to the table of the Lord. Let's just, I mean, we've gone to the trouble to be here today. This is a sanctuary. We're in a sanctuary, so let's, let's uh, find some of the quietness, some of the peace. Let's just enter into it. And, and maybe what you need to do is just give your life to Jesus for the first time or anew. And say, Jesus, just, you can just kind of pray along with me in your own words, but Jesus, we, we, know that, we know that we're sinners. We know that. And we need forgiveness, and you're the holy one that forgives. So we come to you and say, forgive us. Forgive us. Forgive us. And Jesus, we know of our own brokenness. We need your healing. We need you to heal us. Help us, Lord. We come to you, Jesus, because we live in a world of falsehood, and we're seeking the truth. And somehow we've, we just... We've, it's been revealed to us that all of the truth of God is found in you, the Son of God. And so we come to you, Jesus, that we might find some truth, that we might find the one in whom all the riches of God dwells. We come to you, Jesus, for truth. And we come to you because we need to find the one who's worthy to receive thanksgiving for the gifts you've given us. We come to you and we say, thank you. We've been given gifts and we know it. In various ways, we've been given gifts and we know it. And we just come and we say, thank you. Thank you. How can I serve you? How can I serve you, Jesus? Just, just sit with that for just a moment. Just maybe, maybe, maybe lift your hands as, as an expression of just offering yourself, your life, your praise. Or you lift your hands because you're reaching out Help me, save me, forgive me, heal me. Reach out, maybe like I'm reaching for truth. I want to find something that's true in a world that is false. I want to find something that's true. I'm reaching out. Jesus, I ask that you would meet these wise women, these wise men who are drawing near to you in this moment. Amen and amen. Now let's, let's come and receive the gift of the Lord. His body and blood, his life communicated to us through the bread and wine of communion. Let's first receive forgiveness, well, confess our faith and then, then receive forgiveness of sins and then we'll come to the table. Join with me in confessing our Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now let's confess our sins and receive the Lord's forgiveness.
most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.